Hi, I'm Ryder, and today's reading is Philippians 2, 12-16a. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold them firmly to the word of life. Philippians 2, 12-16a. Well, howdy, church. It's good to see you this morning. Ryder, thank you so much for reading our scripture this morning. And again, welcome back to our uh, series called The Keystone Effect, How One Change Can Change Everything. Now, before we get into it, I have two things I need to say to you. First, go ahead and grab your phones. We're going to use them at the end of today's message, and you will need it. Second thing, I'm really excited that next Sunday on June 21st for Father's Day, we're going to gather as a church at 9.30 a.m., on site in our field for Clear Creek Outdoor Worship. It's going to be a great time. We're going to social distance, but we're going to sing. I'm going to preach. We're going to take communion. It'll be just a fabulous day to see one another. Here's what you need to do. Bring a blanket or your chairs. Bring a bottle of water or whatever you want to drink. You know what I mean. Also, be sure to bring an umbrella if you don't want to get too hot and bring communion. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, listen, if you can't join us or don't feel comfortable coming out, that's okay. We will still have our regular worship gathering online at 10.45 a.m. But again, next Sunday, hope to see you for Clear Creek Outdoors. I want to begin today's message with a little bit of an awkward confession. And maybe you can identify, maybe I'm not alone in this. If I'm not, let me know in the comments. But but, but here's my confession. I, I really like, I mean like really, really like watching those home restoration shows. And you know what I'm talking about. All the shows are the same. They follow the basic format. You'll have a host who comes to this house that is absolutely a mess. Maybe they have weeds up to your knees in the yard and trash throughout the house. And you look at it. They start walking through the house, the sloping countertops, the messy blinds, whatever it is. And my thought is always, man, the only thing that will fix this is a gas can and a match. But I love how the host will look around and go, oh, wow, do do you see this over here? This is going to be beautiful. Oh, this will be great. All it'll take is a little work. And then so for the rest of the show, you see them pulling out the junk, cleaning off the counters, tearing out things that are rotted and messed up, and putting in all the beautiful countertops and the new paint and the hardwood floors and the chandeliers, and they make it beautiful until the final big reveal when they go, it's gorgeous. They show a beautiful house that any one of us would love to have. And then they show the before and after pictures, and they say, well, this is what it was like before, but now this is what it's like now, the before and the after, and it's amazing. They go from a house that not one of us would want to a house every one of us would die to have, and the only difference between the before and the after pictures is a little work. That's what Paul's saying here in chapter 2 of Philippians We're in this series, The Keystone Effect, How One Change Changes Everything. And Paul, through this entire chapter, is giving us one change, one change, one change after another, that if we would just adopt just one of these, it would change everything in our hearts and in our homes and in our city and in our world. And today he gave us that one change that I'm convinced right now our church, our city, our nation desperately needs more than maybe any other. Did you see it? 
Did you see the one change that can restore a marriage? Did you see the one change that can reunite children to parents? Did you see the one change that can cause a church that's fracturing to come together? The one change in verse 14, did you see it? Here it is. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing. Can you imagine that? Do everything without complaining or arguing. What would your house look like if you and your spouse said, that's it, no more complaining or arguing? What about with your roommates? No more complaining or arguing or with your kids on those long road trips where where people are saying, I'm tired, I'm hungry, are we there yet? And that's me saying it. Can you imagine how it would be different? This is what he's calling for. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm calling for a church-wide seven-day fast from all complaining and arguing starting now. That we will not give in to complaining and arguing for the next seven days. Can you imagine how it would radically transform us as the people of God, the children of God? But you and I both know that's hard to do. And there's a lot of reasons for it. In fact, there's some research behind why this is so difficult, but what is really going on? In fact, uh, let me share a little bit of of it with you. There's this woman named Laura Markham. She is a clinical psychologist for Columbia University, and she says that the average adult complains 30 times a day. And listen, I got to tell you, I heard that and I thought, man, I'm above average. How about you? And then there's this guy named Travis Bradbury, author of Emotional Intelligence 2.0. He reports that, quote, most people complain once a minute during a typical conversation. And he goes on to say that all of this complaining is actually causing brain damage. There's been all sorts of research behind this. Scientists have discovered that your brain associates what you think and what you do, and it wires it together. So there's this phrase that says neurons that fire together, wire together. Bradbury goes on to say that repeated complaining rewires your brain to make future complaining more likely. Stanford University has now shown that complaining actually shrinks the hippocampus. Now, the hippocampus is that part of your brain that controls uh, intelligent, rational thought. And the more you complain, the more it shrinks. In other words, the more I complain, the more you complain, the dumber we get. And this is terrifying when we realize that this is the part of the brain that Alzheimer's likes to attack. There's more information. In fact, uh, complaining releases the stress hormone cortisol. Cortisol is this chemical that causes the flight or fight or flight mode. It actually can damage your immune system. In fact, if you have too much cortisol, you're susceptible to high cholesterol, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and even you're more susceptible to to, uh, strokes in your brain. In other words, here's the point. Don't miss this. Complaining people, arguing people, not only is it destroying our souls, but it is, in fact, killing us physically. This is a big deal, church. Now, I'm sure Paul didn't have all this great research, but he did have a couple things. The gospel of Jesus Christ and a keen observation of human nature. He was in the process of helping establish this new church in this area of uh, Philippi. And he knew that the one thing that would keep them from shining like stars in a dark city that desperately needed the hope of Jesus Christ, the one thing that could take that away was a spirit of complaining and arguing. 
and this is such a big deal, he addresses it head on in chapter two, 4 in verse 2 when he calls on these two individuals in the church and he says, stop fighting. Be united to one another. Isn't it interesting that sometimes the greatest complaints come from the church? You know, I've been in ministry for 16 years and I, I love the church. I love the body of Christ. I love getting to do what I do. I think I have the best job in the world. But I've found that about 95% of all complaints come from about 5% of the people. And yet Paul says, this is the one change that can change everything. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, Paul, he doesn't just leave us with this happy idea of saying, well, hey, be better, do different. He says, hey, the difference between now and later, before and after, is just a little work. You got to work it out. Notice that. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Everybody say, work it out. Go ahead, work it out. Now, I know that for some of us, if you grew up in the church, you heard this verse and it kind of terrified you because you were told that this meant you had to continue working to remain saved. I want to be very clear. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling is not that you save yourself or keep yourself saved. Because notice, Paul does not say that you work for your salvation. He says you work out your salvation. That little phrase, work out, comes from a Greek word that was used to describe working in a mine, like a silver or gold mine. And so imagine one day your rich mom and daddy, because wouldn't that be nice, show up and they say, sweetheart, I want you to have the deed to our family silver mine. All the silver that's in there is yours. Enjoy. You are now rich. But the question is, how are you going to get the gold? Is it going to just jump out of the mine, land in your hand? No. You got to go in and work it out. See, there are many people who are Christ followers. They've been given every good gift that Jesus Christ has to offer, but they have chosen not to work out what he has worked into them. And it's this moment, this little phrase, with fear and trembling, that is referencing a moment of worship. See, throughout Scripture, when people would encounter the presence of God, they would do so with this fear and trembling, this reverent awe. That's worship. That when you and I would come in contact with the living God, that would be a moment where we would begin to work out what's going on and we would say, God, work in me, change me, heal me, make me more like you. And then he promises, Paul says this, that listen, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it is for God. Notice this, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. In other words, you and I work out what God is working in us. I'll say that again. We work out what God has worked in us. Now listen, this brings some interesting questions, doesn't it? Like for instance, if, uh, you know, if I'm complaining on the inside, but I don't say it, is it really complaining? Well, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I will say, according to Romans 8, 6, that life in the Spirit, that living with the Spirit, if our minds are ruled by the Spirit, we will have life and peace. It's a question for you. If your life is marked by an internal negative dialogue about the traffic, about your spouse, about your kids, about your job, about your church, about your city, about your health, whatever it may be, then how much rule does the Holy Spirit have if your life is not marked by peace? And then there's this other question that comes up. Well, hey, what about sarcasm? Is sarcasm complaining? Again, I can only speak for me. I'll let you know, though, that often I use sarcasm as a funny way of masking a cynical, complaining spirit. 
And so for me, I've learned over the past week as I've been studying this, that I have to work out and start to work on all of my sarcasm. But there's one question that I think we just need to kind of address right now. And here's the big question. Paul says, do everything without complaining or arguing. So does that mean, Josh, you're asking, does that mean that we should sit silent and suffer? Should we be quiet in the face of prejudice or in the face of injustice or in the face of of oppression of any kind? And the answer is a resolute no. That's not what this means. This does not mean that we are silent to that which is wrong. Here's what it does mean. Let me put it this way. Earlier this week, I was in a conversation with just a dear friend, and we were talking about just dumb stuff. It was one of those brainless conversations. And we had a little bit of a disagreement about a particular topic, and my friend made a statement that was factually untrue. And as soon as it left his mouth, I am already going through in my mind all of the bullets in the chamber of how he's wrong, and I'm just going to lay it out, and I'm going to be right. And I was about to argue when the Holy Spirit reminded me of this verse, do everything without complaining or arguing. And I got to tell you, it was a bucket of cold water. And then this question hit my soul, and I believe it was from the Holy Spirit, and the question was this, why do you feel like you have to argue over this one, Josh? What does it matter? And there was this moment of realization that what was at the root of my arguing was a this, this pathological need to just be right and let everyone else know I'm right. See, here's the reality. When the moment comes where you feel tempted to complain or when you feel tempted to argue, that is a moment, it's a warning sign, a siren that should go off in your mind that something is either not right in myself or yourself or something is not right in my area. Something's happening around me that is wrong, that needs to be addressed. Complaining and arguing is a way for us when we, when we begin to be tempted to go that route to realize something's wrong. And so then we get to work out our salvation in that moment. That's where we go to the Father in fear and trembling with this reverent awe. And we humbly say, okay, God, why is it that I feel like I have to argue about this? What, what is going on in me? Will you forgive me for my sin if it's something I'm doing? Or is this an issue that I must stand firm on and we must not allow another voice to dictate what is right when it is so wrong? This is a moment to work out and work your fear and trembling for your salvation. That's what's going on here. Now, I think there's one very crucial way that we might choose to do this. And, and, and I, love, I love some of the creative ways I've heard from different people throughout the past week. How, how do you work on this? How do you give up grumbling and complaining if it is so entrenched? So I want to give you one way for this week. Here's the, here's the way to do it. I'm going to suggest that we exchanged complaining and arguing with God bless yous. Yeah, you heard me, with God bless yous. Hey, listen, during this time of pandemic, how many times have you heard someone utter the phrase, God bless you? In fact, it is a typical response that when you hear someone sneeze or cough to call out, God bless you. I know of atheist friends and skeptics who in a moment when they hear someone sneeze, they will unintentionally say, God bless you. It's just so common to us. Well, I heard of an article earlier this week online from the, uh, I believe it was the Library of Congress where this came, that said that phrase originated during a pandemic some centuries ago. Now, it wasn't our current issue. It was rather the bubonic plague. And one of the first signs that you may have this deadly disease was that you'd sneeze or cough. In fact, this plague was so virulent that it killed over one-third of all the population of Europe. 
And so it was Pope Gregory the Great who had this very thoughtful idea. He said, you know, when you hear someone sneeze or cough, respond with God bless you. See, in our day, we hear that, and it's just sort of this cliche, but in their day, it was a declaration, a defense, a deliverance against death. It was a big deal to say, God bless you. You were literally saying, God, enter this moment. See, what is true physically is true spiritually. See, we live in a physical space where you and I have the ability through our coughs and our sneezes to pass along uh, plagues and viruses. But we also live in a spiritual place where you and I, through how we think, feel, act, and speak, have the ability to pass on blessings to one another. What would it look like this week, church, if we exchanged complaining and arguing with God bless you? If in the moment where your spouse or your children or your boss, your person at church or in the neighborhood does something that just kind of rubs you the wrong way, when traffic's bad or things aren't going your way, the response would simply be, oh God, bless them. Please heal them, help them. Or maybe if you find that the issue is not with someone out there, but it's within you in that moment, say, oh God, please bless me, change me, fix me, do what you can do and only you can do. See, this church is the one change that can change everything. You say, how do you know that? Because Jesus said so. Jesus said that when someone hurts you, harms you, abuses you, ignores you, does something that you don't like, the natural worldly response is you fight back. You treat them the way they treated you. But Jesus says, no, the one change that can change everything, not complaining and arguing, but you bless those who curse you, that you turn the other cheek, that we would be a people who are marked by not complaining and arguing, but we are a bless you kind of church full of bless you kind of people. Now listen, let me be clear. This is not a bless your heart statement. That's not what I mean. Sometimes you'll hear in the South, people will talk about someone. They'll say the ugliest things and then they'll just say, bless your heart. That's not what we're talking about. This is a sincere desire for God's best to come into this person's life, for God's will to enter this space and change what's happening, for God's goodness to enter your heart and to change you, for repentance to take place. And I I want you to know as we're about to go into communion, this is a God bless you moment. It's a moment where we take these emblems, these symbolic representations of the body of Jesus broken on the cross, the blood of Jesus poured out for us, And we are able to receive the God bless you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. That we were enemies of God. That we were far worse than any person you've ever met. We had done far more against God than anything anyone has ever done against you or against me. And in that moment, instead of calling down curses or angels to smite people while he died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this was such a big deal that the early church embraced it. The very first martyr, a man named Stephen, at the moment of his death, right as he was about to die, in Acts 7.60, he says this as people were stoning him, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. This was such a radical, revolutionary way of living that the world had never seen. The church, because of this radical resolution to not be complainers or arguers, but to be God bless you kind of people, led to an explosion of the church where thousands upon thousands upon thousands came to faith. And the world has never been the same, church. And it's amazing. 
The church went from just a few to many because of this kind of attitude, but now we are a very large global family. But I'm afraid we've lost this kind of attitude and the church is shrinking. So what would it look like at this moment of bread and wine, bread and juice, if we were to say no more this week, I'm not going to be marked by complaining and arguing, but I'm going to be a God bless you kind of person. Listen, in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. But before I do, I need to say this. This is very important. You know, there's this very clear teaching in Scripture that Jesus says, if there's any issue between you and a fellow believer, that when you're coming to God, let's say you have an offering, you have something you want to give to God, you have this moment where you want to connect with God, in our case, through communion, that at that moment, if if it comes to mind that you have an issue with someone, or they have issue with you, you leave your offering and you go to this person and you be reconciled before you come to God. That we cannot be reconciled to God if we live unreconciled lives with one another. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to ask you to take your phone. And I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. I'm going to ask you to either reach out to someone and simply say, God bless you. I love you. I'm so thankful for you. Be a blessing. Or if there is someone that you have issue with or who has issue with you, you take the initiative. You reach out, you send them a message, you say, hey, we need to talk, or I'm sorry, but I cannot live in this way and still be the man God wants me to be, to be the woman God wants me to be. What would it look like, church, if starting right now we take our first step to do everything without complaining or arguing, and we become a God-bless-you kind of church? Church, I love you. I just want you to know that you are a great blessing. This has been such a good gift to be with you today. I pray all of God's goodness over you. May God be with you this week. Go with God. Grace and peace.